0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1565.
1: Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks,
0: the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum, which I helped create, gives parents their mental health back and students a top-notch education. In addition to the traditional subjects, how about two years' worth of business, as well as a course on personal finance for teens, a course on public speaking, the kinds of stuff nobody learns anywhere, but which will give your students a major leg up. Plus, through my link only, get $160 worth of free bonuses when you join. That link is ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Jeff Dice Week continues. Jeff, remember, is former chief of staff to Ron Paul, president of the Mises Institute, all-around good guy, and profoundly underrated thinker. And today I want to talk about decentralization and secession as approaches that would be fruitful and humane if only anybody would entertain them. Jeff, welcome back. Thanks so much, Tom. All right, let's pick up with a couple quick things about the Mises Institute. And then I want to talk about decentralization and secession because people want to know what really is the way forward here. You know, you, can, you just vote and vote and vote. And you know my Woods's law is no matter you know you vote all you like and you always wind up with John McCain in the final analysis it always ends up being John McCain. You, you look at the policies that you get, it's John McCain over and over and over. Let me transition into what we want to talk about today with this point that some of the folks who have let's say been unsympathetic to the Mises Institute are part of a Washington, D.C.-oriented approach to the problem. And by the problem, I mean the problem of of liberty versus power that consists of imagining that someday what we'll do is have libertarian Supreme Court justices who will enforce liberty all over America. So again, it'll be a top-down, centrally planned approach. And the Mises Institute, not as an organization, but the scholars associated with it, have tended to look at the question somewhat differently, not favoring what has sometimes been called libertarian centralism of that sort, that uses the 14th Amendment and stuff like that, but rather that is highly decentralist in nature, that favors radical decentralization and secession. Well, of course, the strategy of putting libertarians on the Supreme Court is not something the New York Times favors, but at least you're playing by the New York Times' as rules, which is, these are the institutions we have and we got to we got to work within those confines. I think it's safe to say the scholars of the Mises Institute are much less interested in playing by those rules or being concerned that the New York Times is going to think we're not respectable. I realize decentralization is not respectable, but there's a tremendous American history of it. And no, the decentralist tradition is not inherently tied up with slavery, as anybody who knows the history knows. And you can read that history in my book, Nullification. But the point is, It doesn't matter to me that the New York Times doesn't approve of decentralization. It is obviously the only humane solution in a society like ours where there are people with such divergent worldviews that it's pointless and stupid and evil to try to force them to live under the same set of rules together. Why would you want to do that? I mean we've all been kind of brainwashed into thinking that's the only way to go, and any other approach is neo-confederate or whatever BS they're throwing at you. The only way for us to live is this inhumane way of having a low-intensity civil war with each other where we just try to force each other, round holes into square pegs. And there are humane people among us who say, how about we lay down our arms and stop doing this, and we're the ones who are demonized and evil, and you probably support slavery. I mean, again, I wish I could be attacked by H.L. Mencken because at least then it would be entertaining.
2: Let's not forget Mises wrote quite a bit about this. He was very concerned with political minorities in a society being overrun, and in particular linguistic minorities. Now, you have to understand he was coming out of this sort of patchwork quilt of old Europe, and Germany was many, many principalities, and you had the Habsburg Empire and all these things coming together and then changing radically after World War I in particular, and, and again after World War II, many of these boundaries were redrawn. And so he, Mises himself, of course, always advocated this, the idea that political minorities ought to be allowed to break away from a centralized state. I think that the centralizing impulse is almost always a statist impulse. I don't like the idea that we all have to live in some sort of mass democracy. 320 million people, I think, is a very unwieldy thing to make decisions about with two parties, you know, and either Trump's going to win in fall of 2020 or Hillary or, or excuse me, well, maybe Hillary or Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or whomever's going to win. And this is going to be, again, this binary thing that, that a bunch of us have to sort of uneasily accept. And I don't think that's very healthy. I think that the smaller administrative units are always preferable, you know, and we have, we have a, a history in the United States that unfortunately makes the idea of secession or, moving decentralization uh, attached to this to the Confederacy and to slavery and to the Civil War. Look, th- that's a bad history, but that doesn't nullify the underlying doctrine of allowing people to peaceably walk away from political arrangements that just aren't working anymore. I-, I mean, you don't have to be for the Confederacy to believe that. You don't have to be a Confederate, Neo-Confederate to think that Lincoln was a bad guy and a centralizer and a tyrant. I mean, this is just you know, this kind of binary thinking needs to be thrown out the window. It's it's so obvious it's staring us in the face is that this is the way forward. And, and of course, if the constitution had been followed somewhat, it did set up a federal system where states would have had a lot more power and authority over social and cultural and criminal matters. And, the, you know, we could have had a much higher degree of federalism, which would have been a release valve of sorts to let some of the steam out. But when we have, uh, you know, Maybe a few hundred people in the U.S. House or Senate deciding things for 320 million or in many cases, five Supreme Court justices out of nine deciding things for 320 million people. That is a recipe for strife and dissent and disaster. I mean, there's absolutely no reason why we have to have one unified, let's say, abortion rule for all 50 states or one form of gun laws for all 50 states. Now, I realize there is some localized gun control. Don't get me wrong. It's just, it's a bad idea. And I think we understand that on some level, but libertarians have tended to insist oh, no, no, you know, smaller is not necessarily better. A smaller government, you know, being ruled by uh, at the local level or the regional level or the state level could be, you know, just as bad or worse for liberty. So that's not the yardstick which we use to measure things. Well, all right, let's not forget that liberty is not a majority position. Most people believe in a pretty robust government, especially when it comes to their own things like Social Security, right? Um, So the idea that smaller isn't better is, I think, mystifying because we always want to break up state power. We'd always prefer having two states exercise dominion, let's say, over 20 million people each than one state exercising dominion over 40 million people. I think we can understand that Centralization means that the contagion is broader and wider, and then there's fewer choices and there's fewer chances for experiments. Uh, Obviously, I'm a big fan of the Swiss system of subsidiarity. I think it's probably about the best thing we have uh, in the world today, far from perfect. But the idea of pushing decisions down to the communal level or the cantonal level, as opposed to deciding them federally, I think is very healthy. And I think it gives Switzerland A degree of social cohesion that big states, big governments don't have. And and as a matter of fact, if you look at the Swiss government's website, they actually say in about four or five different languages, because the Swiss are so good at this sort of thing, they actually say, you know, what the desire here is to have social cohesion. (laughs) You know, imagine Trump or Bernie campaigning in 2020 and going around and, you know, going to Des Moines, Iowa, or New Hampshire, or South Carolina, one of the early primary states and saying, you know, I'm here today to tell you, that I don't really know what's best for the farmers here in Iowa because I'm not a farmer and I don't really study crop commodity prices and I don't know about all these Byzantine uh, ag subsidies. The whole thing's really complex and then there's weather on top of that. It's really localized. So my promise to you today as a candidate is that if you vote for me, I'm going to let Iowa decide as much as possible at the local level. <laughs> I mean, I mean that. imagine that's the opposite of what politicians in the U.S. and in the West say. That's the opposite of hubris. It, it would be such a breath of fresh air to say, you know, I don't know what's best for you. I'm going to let you have a closer stab at deciding it. And look, Tom, go back to the first Congress. America only had a a, a whatever, 6 million people or something in the outset. And if we extrapolated the number of U.S. representatives and senators at the time to today, we'd have something like 5,000 or 6,000 members of Congress. And unless you lived in some really rural part of Alaska or something, you'd probably be within a couple miles or maybe a mile of your U.S. representative. And so all that has gone out the window with this country of 320 million people where everything's decided in DC. And, and let's not forget that even if a libertarian position wins at the Supreme Court, th- that could easily be reversed, right? I mean, this, the makeup of the Supreme Court can change. So I, I'm a big believer in saying, look, let states be states. I don't, I, I don't care about liberty to the point of imposing it on others. That's paraphrasing Mencken. And there are plenty of people in the United States who absolutely do not hold li- a libertarian worldview. And the idea that you are going to slowly over time convert all of them, I think, is a pretty daunting task. But you could certainly convert a sizable enough portion of them to form a geopolitical union of sorts. I mean, you know, there are fully functioning countries like Norway that just have six or eight million people. And you could, you know, if you believe that Cato study from a few years back, that maybe 10 percent. Of Americans are pretty libertarian in their worldview. That's thirty million people right there. I mean, that's plenty of people to have a country now. How how you would assemble them geographically is a different question. But I I am a firm believer that from both a pragmatic perspective and also from a philosophical perspective of not imposing anything on other people, that this is this is what we have to be thinking about. And there, look, there, there are huge problems there. We, we may never be able to undo, you know, Social Security, and Medicare, which are federal programs. OK, you know, you've paid into it. You want to get your money, whatever your position is. But when you move away, when you go to a foreign country like the Philippines to retire, you still get Social Security. You still qualify for Medicare. You might have to come to the U.S. for a Medicare eligible doctor. But, um, you know, military bases and federal land. Yeah, OK, it's, it would be very, very tough to divvy that up. I, I get it you know uh, ports natural resources all of these things you know people might fight over rather than just break up peaceably but the idea that we dismiss out of hand as libertarians the idea of any kind of uh, subsidiarity or federalism or secession or political breakup i think it's just crazy i i don't understand this centralizing impulse from people who admittedly by their own admission are part of a of a minority viewpoint it doesn't make any sense and and so you know i i would rather let let a state like utah which is it's actually far less culturally and socially conservative today than people imagine it but let let's say utah 40 50 years ago uh, a culturally and socially conservative state not entirely but full of mormons you know if they wanted to have different laws on divorce or you know more draconian drug laws or you know different laws on for prostitution okay i mean you can maybe nevada would be the opposite maybe nevada would say hey come here you can get divorced in a day come here you can use uh whatever kind of of drugs you you care to use because the drug war isn't federalized come here you can uh you know view pornography or go to adult clubs come here you can drink at any age you can stay out and drink on the street walk around with a beer until five in the morning we don't care i mean is that the worst possible outcome? Is that really so noxious to the libertarian worldview? Or do we have to say, no, no, no. You know, the whole country has to be to be libertarian. And, and so I'll leave you with this. The knock on states' rights. Oh my gosh, that goes back to the Civil War. And that was just a, a form, that was just an excuse for states that wanted to continue holding slaves. Look, States' rights doesn't mean that that we're saying states have rights. It means relative to the people. And nobody, that's just ridiculous. Nobody argues that. States' rights means that individual states in the union have have hold rights vis-a-vis the federal government. That's all it ever meant. It didn't mean states have rights. States are just a a smaller political entity. It doesn't mean they have particular rights against the people. So that was, it it was always a a canard and and a red herring. And so I'm, I'm not not only mystified, I'm a little discouraged sometimes that this isn't the conversation because uh, this is a conversation where we can be having this with the left. You want to talk about outreach to the left. I mean what the left has found out, especially in 2016, is that there's a lot more deplorables than they thought and that they're lingering a lot longer than they thought. When I say lingering, I, I mean, the demographic changes aren't happening as fast as the left thought. So, you know, we could give blue states a bargain today and say, you know, you right, right now, today, you could have a lot more of what you want without worrying about whether red state Alabama is going to elect Jeff Sessions back to the Senate and he's gonna have a vote over some abortion law, which is really just being run up the flagpole for testing before the Supreme Court. I mean- that That's ridiculous. Why should someone in Nancy Pelosi's district, and they vote for her something like 80%, by the way, for reelection. Why should someone in Nancy Pelosi's district have to worry about Jeff Sessions in Alabama? I don't want him to have to worry about it. That's, you know, I, I think it's just, it's the peace, it's the peaceable way forward. I think that was the title of one of your talks a few years ago at an event of ours in Houston on secession. It's the, It's the obvious solution staring us all in the face, but this insistence that, We can't get divorced and we all have to stay with a spouse in a bad marriage. Oh, man, that's that's, I think, a huge mistake. So I really I really would recommend that people go read just select passages in Mises liberalism written in 1927 and, and about 10 years earlier in 1919 in Nation, State and Economy, where he talks about, you know, this this these mechanisms for allowing political minorities to go their own way, because I think every word of that reads absolutely true and
0: applicable today. When we talk about this, I can't help thinking to myself that, you know I don't fit into either red or blue. I just don't, because the blue side of the thing makes me crazy. These people make me crazy. And then I think, "Ah, here we go. I'm going to hang around with some conservatives, and at least I've got something in common with them." And then I just remember the worst stuff about them, and I think, "Oh, like for instance, you've had years at this point, years and years and years and years of the Internet. And you're still – I haven't kept up with conservatives in a long time because I haven't gone to their conferences. I haven't spoken. I just haven't. I got a lot of invites under Obama, and so I spoke to a lot of Tea Party groups, and I haven't spoken to them in a long time. They've had all these years to learn about foreign intervention, the drug war, the truth about the police, the truth about all these topics, and the, the president is not your friend. And then I go back, and they're still saying, you know, uh, back the blue, and he's my president. And you better say the Pledge of Allegiance. That's who you still are? Like you've endured years and years of being exploited by the regime and lied to and and ripped off, and you're still exactly where you were philosophically at the beginning. You've learned nothing. There's no nuance at all. So I can't can't stand these people either. So even if we do have secession, what I fear will happen is something somebody in my private group said the other day. I fear— The blue section becomes more oppressively blue, and the red part becomes more oppressively red, the things that make them most identifiably red, which is we want a law against this, a law against that. Then they're going to have a free reign on that, and where the heck do I go? Where do the rest of us go? Where do the libertarians go? Where do that 10 percent go in
2: that scenario? Very tough question and, and not one that's easily solved. I mean, we've seen just over the past couple of days, the response, not amongst all conservatives. I mean, there are the Tucker Carlson's of the world. Oh, I I, but, I agree, I agree. And, but, and I
0: always point those out, but there should be way more of
2: those. Right, and of course, going, you know, Trying to gin up a war with Iran, a country of eighty million people after all of our history in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last almost twenty years now, I mean any conservatives cheering for that uh, you know i don 't at this point i 'm with you i 'm not exactly sure what you can say to these people, but again, if we are really this hardwired into these kind of tribes and and it seems ha- like hardwiring because reason and evidence don 't necessarily change. People's views all the time. We can't always argue people out of seeing the world a certain way. You know, where does that leave libertarians? Again, I think it leaves us arguing for breakup, and saying let's break this thing into some individual pieces where we can have more of what we want. Other people can have more of what they want here and now. I, you know, I've I've heard different people say this. I've heard Angela Keaton from Anti War say this. By the way, she hates my guts. I'll just add that. that it's easier to teach the left economics than it is to teach the right peace.
0: I don't think that's that's not been my experience.
2: Yeah, I don't know. That's But that's an interesting comment.
0: I just went on this tirade against the right. And yet even even after that, I'll say, when they do have enough curiosity to listen, I can get them to change much, much more successfully than I can get the left to learn economics. Because they think of economics as a sham science that was developed to rationalize greed, well, how do you talk to somebody like that? Yeah, that's right. The left doesn't believe
2: economics is a real discipline they they think it's just intellectual cover for corporate interests or or wealth um, you know I guess this I guess this is outs me as a right libertarian of sorts, in that I think you can talk to the right about limits or areas of human conduct or existence where government ought not to be involved. Whereas the left tends to say everything is political, everything is power struggle, everything is critical theory, everything is race, everything is gender, everything is sex and sexuality. And I, I just, you know, I, I can't respond to that. At some point you just say that's crazy and we, we should go our separate ways. Um, so uh, while I, I think both left and right are equally bad ideologically when it comes to their pure political worldviews, I certainly think the left has more power. I think the left is is a tiger. I think the right is a pussycat. And and, you know, I think the idea that some sort of sort of nasty left socialist oligarchy run by the Tim Cooks of the world is going to grind us down is far more likely than, you know, a Mike Huckabee right theocracy is going to grind us down. I think that's just the reality of where we are today. So it, but it, it's a tough question, and seeing seeing the bellicosity on Twitter towards Iran uh, these last few days has it's been pretty disheartening. We've got work to do.
0: All right, and as do you and I. We've got two more days' worth of Jeff Dice Week that we have to cut through like a hot knife through butter. We're just about to, to go do that. On this topic of secession, well, you know what? On the show notes page, which would be tomwoods.com slash 1565, I do want to point out that I'm going to link to my my book, Nullification, because the history in there of decentralization and – but in particular, the history of really the nature of the American Union and the debates about it and the American Union being a collection of societies rather than a single whole, I think it's just very important for Americans to understand this is actually where you come from. This is – what what we're talking about here is not foreign to you. So I'm going to – I'll link to that there, tomwoods.com slash 1565. All right. Thanks, Jeff. More to come tomorrow. All right, folks, there are a lot of things you can secede from, not just the crummy regime, but also the crummy boss you hate and the crummy job that's making you miserable. Build something on the side, build up something for yourself on the side. And you know, I promote different ways of doing that. And we mentioned Skillshare today in this program. And also, I have a free ebook on the subject, of course. I mean, what else, right? What do you expect from Old Woods here? So check that out at pathstoincome.com. you got to check that out just for how minimalist that squeeze page is. It tells you nothing, and yet people sign up for that thing in droves. I just love it. Human psychology fascinates me. Pathstoincome.com is my little ebook about things I do to avoid working for the man. So check that out. We'll see you tomorrow.
1: Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.
0: Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com. The Tom Woods Show, episode 1541.
1: Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show.
0: Now, today we are talking to the great Dominic Frisby, who is the author of the brand new book, Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future. He writes a weekly investment column for Money Week about gold and finance. And I really think you're going to find what he has to say. Very interesting. It's a really, really interesting book, by the way. Linked, of course, at TomWoods.com 1541. Dominic, welcome. Thank you very much, Tom. This book, which I've just introduced to the folks, must have been such an undertaking. It exhausts me just thinking about writing what is essentially kind of like a skeleton history of civilization in order to cover the topic you're hitting on here, namely taxation. What on
3: earth would motivate you to do such a thing? You you have no idea, Tom. I did a – I had this idea that, you know, in a zombie film, a trope of every zombie film is this idea of patient zero, the patient where the zombie virus starts and the hero of the zombie film has to get to patient zero and either kill patient zero or patient zero will give her the, an- the antidote that he needs to save the world. And I had this idea that that tax is patient zero in a society. If we want to fix our society, we need to fix our system of tax. And I did uh, an Edinburgh sh- a show at the Edinburgh Festival about tax in 2016. Uh, and it was a tremendous success. It sold out and I got a laurel and good reviews and all this kind of thing. And everyone was going, oh, I can't believe all these interesting things about tax. And how did you make tax funny? It was a stand up show. And um, one of the things that came out of the show was a was a book deal. I got a book deal with Penguin and I thought to myself, at uh, the Edinburgh Festival finishes at the end of August, and I thought I can knock this book out before Christmas, between September and December, uh, the three months uh, over the autumn or fall, as you call it, and then I'll start work on my next year's Edinburgh show in January. And it took me what I thought would be three months. Took me three years. Oh my that that's a that's a project. <laughs> it is, and and as you say, like. There has never been a civilization without taxation. And the very first taxes were enacted in ancient Mesopotamia, you know, when man first settled. And it's probable that this idea of duty to the greater collective existed even in the hunter gatherer societies that predated civilization. So as a result, I found myself, as you say, writing the entire history of civilization through the prism of taxation. But what I bet – I bet there is a difference in the way people looked at it because I, my feeling
0: is that in ancient times – People understood clearly this is tribute or this is uh, – I'm being forced to do this against my will for heaven knows what reason. Whereas today, there's much a much greater apparatus of propaganda around taxation that, oh, it's actually voluntary. You actually consented to this. We have a social contract whereby we all agreed to abide by the, – you know, there's a huge apparatus surrounding it to get people to consent to it. Whereas I think in the old days, it was probably
3: more or less just brute force. Um, Well, there certainly was brute force and you're absolutely right where there's always this moral argument around taxation. You know, even you see, even in the use of the word, things like taxes, your duty was an old word used for taxation and, and still is used today. Of course, we have duties and tariffs on various goods. So there's always this moral argument. And and yeah, the those who believe in large government, you know, social democrats or even socialists, will try and smear you as some kind of abhorrent person if you actually turn around and say, well, I don't actually think high taxes are a good thing. And I don't necessarily think that government is the best way to provide, you know, education or welfare or healthcare or so on. You know, and I actually was on a BBC radio programme earlier in the week, on with a a lady who's an MP for the Liberal Democrats, which is our sort of social democrat party what would be your sort of the equivalent of your democrat party although not as uh, influential but politically in the same place and she called me repugnant for suggesting that that high taxes aren't a good thing repugnant i mean how about that (laughs) so They will use – and it's funny, like, there's examples of this all through history. You know, for example, in uh, medieval times, if you didn't want to go to war to fight uh, with your king, um, you would have a tax levied against you, and it was called the cowardice tax. (laughs) Ah, how about that? (laughs) Yeah.
0: The cowardice um, tax, okay.
3: A cowardice tax for those who didn't want to – for knights who didn't want to go to the Crusades with their king. And in fact, funnily enough, all through history, there is this relationship between taxes and war. And it's a weird sort of symbiotic two-way relationship where, you know, if you want to end war, then end taxes, because without taxes, wars aren't possible. Wars are paid for with taxation, either during the event or through debt, which is, of course, a tax on the future. And debt is also taxation without representation. And then, you know, a war is about conquering a a country and then once that country is conquered, you know, that country is plundered and then taxed. But at the same time, as wars are made possible by tax, taxes are made possible by war. And so for example, you know, it's very hard. There's a proven track record of governments trying to raise taxes during peacetime and it making them extremely unpopular and then and then often being overthrown. But wars give them the excuse. And your great nation is a prime example of this. Until 1942, income tax was only paid by the very rich. And, you know, ordinary Americans were not affected by income tax. And then you had the 1942 Revenue Act, uh, which brought income tax to every man. And what tends to happen is the war goes away, but the tax remains. Or the tax might come back a bit in peacetime, but it never goes back to the levels it was before the war started. So tax enables war, and war enables tax. And by the way, there's a fantastic song that, if you can, you should play it on your program that was commissioned in 1942 in order to make ordinary Americans celebrate the payment of income tax. And it was written by, commissioned uh, off the songwriter Irving Berlin and sung by Gene Autry. And the song goes, I paid my income tax today, a thousand planes to bomb Berlin. They'll all be paid for and I chipped in. That's one of the lyrics. And so was ever the link between war and tax. And this is supposed to be a happy song, but it's a very stark lyric when you think, uh, look see those bombers in the sky, Rockefeller helped to build them, so did I. And this was to, you know, to make it clear to Americans that their their tax money was going to fund that war. Now, that's very interesting, especially when we contrast that with what goes on in
0: U.S. foreign policy these days. Because, yes, Americans were angry after 9-11, but it's 2019 now. And for heaven's sake, none of them could care less about what's going on in Iraq or most of these countries And so when the U.S. is engaged in, let's say, low-intensity wars there, or even, frankly, the most recent war in Iraq in 2003, it's being funded in different ways because Americans are getting tax cuts during this time. And so to them it seems costless. And I can understand during the 1940s that there could be people who may well have been very happy to pay income tax because they looked at Hitler and he seemed like a unique evil. But you look at these two-bit nobodies in the Middle East – and you think, really? Is this really why my standard of living should be lowered? So it looks like they're using f- something other than taxation precisely
3: for that reason. Debt is the answer. Right. And you have a, you have a chapter on debt and inflation. I do. And taxes in America are, are lower than the, the tax to GDP ratio in America is about 37, 38 percent, something like that. And in the UK, it's about 45, 46 percent. But it's much higher if you include debt and uh, inflation you know the debasement of money but debt is the first thing to note about debt it is a tax on the future but it is also taxation without representation because the social Democrat argument is, well, you know, you're given your vote every four or five years and you vote for the and you can say if you don't want these taxes through your vote. Now, of course, we all know how ineffective a vote you're, you're choosing between Democrat and Republican. You you know, it's like choosing between a, a serial killer and a mass murderer, you know, but the. um. The nature of debt is it's also taxation without representation. And let me give you an example of why that is. It's because it's my kids who will be paying for the debt that's taken on by my government today. And, you know, World War I, the UK was fought between 1914 and 1918. And the UK only finished paying off its World War One debts in 2015, 100 years later. Can you believe that? The, the debts of World War One were only paid back, finally paid down three years ago, four years ago. And so I, who was born four generations, three generations after World War One, was paying for that war. And so, you know, debt is I just regard it as the way governments use debt. I regard it as deeply immoral. And of course, you know, that war in Iraq, I think it's fair to say without sounding like too much of a conspiracy theorist that the perpetrators of 9/11 who oh my goodness me should they be punished but it wasn't iraq you know that 9/11 was used as an excuse to get involved in, overse- in 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 iraq and take control of the tax base now the tax base in iraq as well as the people is of course its natural resources it's oil well and that that opens
0: up quite a can of worms and i we've got so much to cover here yeah let's, <laughs> yeah, let's go somewhere else. Yeah, let's leave and, that one hanging. <laughs> yeah, not, not that I don't want to talk about it, but but I, I feel like I
3: owe it to you as the author of this book to jump around a bit. You started. Let, say- let me tell you. I was gonna say, just, just as a you just made me think of something, just in saying what you said, but I I'll tell you about amazing war tax that was levied in the Napoleonic Wars. And this was uh, William Pitt was the English Prime Minister at the time of the Napoleonic Wars. And he was famous for taxing everything. And one contemporary said, wherever there is an object, he will tax it. And he taxed carriages, he taxed dogs, he taxed horses, he taxed signets, you know, uh, your signet ring, he would tax it, your crest of arms, windows, glass, he taxed everything. And among the many things he taxed was wigs and wig powder. And so Because wig powder became so expensive, poor people could no longer afford it because of the tax payable on wig powder, so they started using flour instead. And the result of that is it pushed the cost of flour up and made food, which was much more expensive on a relative basis back in those days because food production was far less efficient, pushed food prices up. But there was a a group of people who decided that they were opposed to the Napoleonic War, and in order to make their opposition, to to show their opposition, they stopped wearing wigs and cut their hair very short according to the fashion of the continent. And so that uh, William Pitt's wig tax started a whole new fashion and that's why we wear our hair short today. It all started with this bizarre wig tax of William Pitt. And the tax continued until 1869 when people had long since stopped wearing wigs and using wig powder. There are stories like this all throughout history. In fact, the primary
0: theme of your book, I would say, involves how taxation has shaped the development of civilization. And in fact, when you look back on it, it's interesting how many major historical events wind up turning on taxation, at least in part. I mean, obviously, the American War for Independence had a great deal to do with taxation. But we all know, I mean, obviously, an American and a British audience know all about that. What would you say are lesser known areas of history where really they turned on
3: something having to do with taxation? Once you start to look for tax stories and you start to look at the world through this prism of taxation, so much becomes clear. And suddenly things that were no longer explainable. Suddenly, you can understand why things happened as they did, why things are in the world as they are today, and why things will be as they are in the future. Because tax is power, it is control. And, you know, whether it's a king or an emperor or a government, if they lose control of, the, of, of tax revenue, they lose their power. And Tax, the way we're taxed at the moment, we tax labor very heavily, but we don't tax assets much at all. And so we have created a society that's incredibly unequal and it's geared against the worker. The asset owner benefits in the way that the, the worker doesn't because the worker constantly and heavily pays taxes. Now, you can look through history, as you say, and every war, every single war was made possible by tax, as we said so. You can, even things like you know, every great building, you think of things like the pyramids or, or, or the White House, was built, you know, with tax money or the labor of, of taxpayers or, or, in many cases, slaves. And slavery is like, you know, a that is 100% taxation, if you like, where you, you own none of your own labor. And you can even look at things like the Great Wall of China. Well, we think that the Great Wall of China was built to keep invaders out. As much as it was built to keep invaders out, it was built to protect tax revenue and tax goods coming in and out of China, particularly along the Silk Road. So buildings were built. Every revolution, every revolt was a rising up an attempt to overthrow power and get rid of some economic injustice perpetrated by the tax system and of course we have you know no taxation without representation um the french revolution uh, the russian revolution in, uh, uh, you know the the unfair taxes levied against um serfs in russia the philippine revolution began with the uh, cry of pugad lawin in which he exhorted citizens to tear up their tax certificates so it's not just wars and revolutions as revolts though but even things as apparently you know the first men on the moon nasa was a tax-funded operation the attack of the twin towers the twin towers were largely built with taxpayers money you know the birth of christ mary and joseph would not have been in bethlehem had augustus caesar not levied that tax they went there to either to pay taxes or or to uh, fulfill their their duties to the census which was again for the purposes of taxes had augustus caesar not levied that tax they would never have been in in Bethlehem and Christianity would never have evolved in the way that it did. And eventually by the same token the eventual charge for which Jesus Christ was crucified was forbidding to pay tribute. In other words there was a you know it was tax was the reason that he was crucified. So you know at the birth of Christ and at his death there's a tax story and You know, one of the things I used to do in my Edinburgh show, Tom, was actually to have the audience shout out events from history and I would attempt to tell them the tax story behind that event. One of the only areas where there isn't a tax story... At least, not obviously at first, is natural disasters. So you know, the Great Fire of London, or the plague, or the the Indonesian tsunami, or something like that. But even these events, you know, there's always a tax story in the rebuilding effort afterwards. There's always, you know, some, you know, the London was rebuilt on the proceeds of a coal tax, and even the plague, which swept through Europe in the uh, Middle Ages, there's a tax story there in that the plague effectively destroyed feudalism, um, in that suddenly you know, it killed so many people. Suddenly there was a shortage of serfs and the value of labour increased and serfs were finally able to start charging for their labour and they were given their freedom. And so did the, you know, the poorest in society start handling money for the first time. And then again, once they were handling money, pretty soon after they were paying poll taxes and, uh, you know, their money was being taken from them. And even the name you have, you have because of taxes. Because, again, until the um, thirteen, the 12, 13, 1400s, people had one name. And then when poll taxes started to be collected, leaders needed to differentiate people uh, in order to levy taxes. And so you'd be called Tom Smith after the job you did. You were a Smith. Or you'd be called after a prominent geographical location uh, where you lived. So it'd be Tom Smith as opposed to Tom from the woods. Or you'd be named after your father uh, as opposed to Tom Johnson you know, son of John or Tom uh, MacLeod. Mac is another word for for son of, or the Irish O'Shea means Shea's son. So even the names you have, you you have because of taxes. And now in in China, surnames go all the way back to, I think, two and a half thousand years BC. And they were first imposed by the Emperor Fuji and F-U-X-I, you pronounce that. But even he imposed surnames for the very same reason, for the uh, levying of poll taxes. And it's just amazing how apparently unconnected things have got this tax story at their heart. And I suppose my big aim with this book is that, you know, in the Enlightenment, one of the great periods of human development, all the great philosophers of the Enlightenment, among other things, they talked about the morals of taxes. And you think about today, you know, libertarians talk about tax and they talk about how unjust income tax is in particular and rightly so. But Generally speaking, the morals of tax are not debated in the way that they were during the enlightenment in the second half of the 18th century. And so one of my aims of this book is to just tell as many amazing tax stories as possible and get people thinking about tax and talking about tax. Once again, because as I say, tax is the zero patience. So many of society's ills start with inequitable taxation. And if we're to make the world a better place, and I think all of us want that, the place to start is to fix our system of tax, and that's the one thing a politician really does have the power to do. Politicians often complain that there's only so much they can do, but they can fix our system of tax, and boy, oh boy, does it need fixing.
0: Well, I want to say a little something because I know you're very interested in cryptocurrency, and you have some material in this book on that. In fact, I believe if I if memory serves, the chapter is called Crypto, the Tax Man's Nightmare, and I'd like to talk about that because – from the point of view of an American where the the tax laws now basically say that Bitcoin is not basically being treated like money. So that what happens is if if I have some Bitcoin and then the Bitcoin appreciates and then I spend it, I have to track the difference between the value of the Bitcoin when I bought it, the value of the Bitcoin when I got rid of it. I have to declare that as a gain and be taxed on it. That doesn't seem like the taxman's nightmare to me. It seems like the tax man is making Bitcoin impossible to use. <laughs> what, what am I missing?
3: Uh, well, you're absolutely right. And the bureaucracy involved with declaring your Bitcoin profits and losses if you use it on a, on a daily basis to buy and sell stuff is such a nightmare that most people don't bother to do it. And they just um, – you know, they're non-compliant and I guess they're breaking the law. And I mean, you see lots of what we call Bitcoin whales, the Bitcoin millionaires. They've just renounced their US citizenship and they've gone to, you know, Roger Veer's gone to Japan. Others have gone to um, the Caribbean. You know, a lot of Americans have just made so much money from it. They've just renounced their citizenship. But I'll tell you why crypto is the tax man's nightmare. And that is, at the moment, income tax is in its various forms, is government's largest source of revenue. It accounts for roughly 50% of government revenue worldwide. And it's been so successful from the government's point of view because it's been an easy tax to collect because there is this clear relationship between employee and employer. And you can say to the employer, collect the taxes on behalf of this employee and the, the taxes are deducted at source and the employee never even had the money in his hands in the first place you know chris rock says they you don't pay tax they take tax that's a jack and he's absolutely right now why crypto is the tax man's nightmare is that the nature of employment is changing and more and more people are having multiple income streams they're becoming freelancers the gig economy contingent workers all these different words for it and ernst and young have forecast that by 2030 so that's only 10 11 years away half the world's workforce will be what it calls contingent. And taxes are much harder to collect from contingent workers because you have to tax them after the event. Now, so just park that thought for a moment and then think of the nightmare that governments around the world have had taxing the intangible economy. Google, the internet, Apple, Amazon, uh, Starbucks, all these genius ways by which these large corporations avoid paying tax quite legally. And they they park you know their intellectual property in one place where there's a, it's a low tax jurisdiction and they, they just make use of different tax laws around the world, and this is one reason why the intangible economy has been so incredibly successful because it hasn't had to pay the same amount of taxes that the physical economy has had to pay. And governments have, we know the government tax systems are designed around a physical economy that you can touch and see that they, they they still haven't got used to the internet properly. And now if you think of the problems it's had taxing these intangible corporations, what happens when workers become intangible as well? So of this 50% of the global workforce that, are, that that will be contingent, maybe as much as 30% will do work in multiple jurisdictions around the world through the internet. Some of them will be digital nomads, they'll be traveling from one jurisdiction to the other. They spend less than 183 days in each country, they're no longer resident of that country. And so we have things called non-DOMs in the UK, who are these extremely rich people who enjoy a special tax status. But the, the, the Internet is going to make non-DOM status possible for ordinary workers. Now, 50 percent of digital nomads already today work in the crypto economy in some way, in the sense that they receive cryptocurrency as payment for their goods and services and cryptocurrency makes sense to them because they work in the borderless economy that is the internet it makes sense to be paid in borderless money it's a pain in the ass if you're a brazilian and you get paid in dollars and you haven't got a us dollar bank account and yada 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 and you happen to be in thailand at the time or you know whatever you know forex is a nightmare and the internet still hasn't well it has sorted that out in the form of bitcoin government money hasn't sorted that out but what do you do when suddenly your workforce who previously had been easily taxable are now suddenly not so easily taxable because the jurisdiction that the tax money they should be paying is not clear and they're being paid in money over which you have no control you know as a libertarian that is a beautiful thing (laughs) but it's a it's a big headache for governments well let me
0: ask you uh what i think would be the major objection that you would get people would say well these are interesting stories you're telling but it seems a little bit perverse to be focused on taxation when the fact is we get all these wonderful benefits from taxation i mean look at all the good that's done with the the public money so to nitpick about the way it's collected i mean maybe that's a mild concern but you set that against all the benefits of it it seems trivial what's the problem
3: with that well Again, this is uh, one of those arguments that will never die. But is government the best means to provide the best possible education, the best possible welfare, the best possible health care at the lowest possible price? And I would argue, no, it isn't. Certainly not education. You know, around the world, private schools outperform public schools. And, you know, the reaction shouldn't be to ban private schools and make, you know, and there's something highly immoral about, you know, government setting school curricula. And we have the internet. It is the most powerful learning tool ever invented. You know, why do we need schools in their current form? Most of um, the syllabus that you learn at school is designed for a different age, and it's in very little real use in the much? How many schools make computer code obligatory? You know, the guy who reads computer code in today's age, it's like being literate in medieval times. It just gives you such a huge advantage over everyone else. Computer code should be compulsory if you believe in state education. And yet, I mean, I'm not sure about America, but so there's so many flaws with government services in their current form. And, you know, I'm a great believer in the efficiency of markets. And, you know, if there's a problem, the market will fix it one way or another. And, you know, so much of what government currently does you know, education, we've got the internet, healthcare, look at the way that Silicon Valley is, you know, trying to, as it puts it, solve the healthcare problem. But there's so many ways by which prevention, early warning signs, all these things that you get by using data in healthcare, you know, there's so many ways by which the free market is already, and you know, public transport you look at something like uber it's so much better than public transport why do you even need public transport ubers and when we go to driverless cars as sooner or later we will you know it's going to be even cheaper so my argument of to that is government is not the best possible way to provide these services at the lowest possible cost at the highest possible standard the free market does it better but the free market could do it much better if government stayed out of it and I just think – I actually had two chapters on the future of government services, but I took them out of the book because it was getting a bit long-winded. But the, that, that's the argument that I make is that so many government services are just being made to look redundant by the free market and new technology. Well, the book is Daylight Robbery, How
0: Tax-Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1541. Do you have a website?
3: Do you know, you- do you, I, I do, Tom. And do you know why it's called Daylight Robbery? Because that expression, which means brazen theft, it actually derives from the window tax that we used to pay in, uh, in Europe in the uh, seventeen and 1800s. And uh, when, when there was a big debate in Parliament as to whether we should get rid of the window tax or not, um, it, the MPs all cried out daylight robbery. And that's where that expression derives from.
0: It's, it's terrific. I, I absolutely love it. So in addition to linking to your book on my show notes page, is there a website you'd like me to link to as well?
3: Sure. You can link to dominicfrisbee.com slash blog and, uh, you know, you can read some of the stuff I post in there. On You can follow me on Twitter at Dominic Frisbee. And I think I've got a Facebook page as well. Facebook slash Dominic Frisbee. I'm, all, I'm on all the usual social media if people want to argue with me. Okay, Dominic Frisbee,
0: D-O-M-I-N-I-C, and then Frisbee, F-R-I-S-B-Y, DominicFrisbee.com slash blog. So, okay, I'll link to that stuff at TomWoods.com slash 1541. Go check out Daylight Robbery, folks, because you're going to learn a lot of interesting material. And thanks so much for your time, Dominic. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. You're a great interviewer. Okay, folks, now remember, this is Black Friday week. And starting on Black Friday, I'm going to be having an absolute blowout over at Liberty Classroom, which is my... Adult Enrichment Site, let's put it that way. We've got something like 25 courses there in history, economics, other topics. It's the stuff they kept from you. And it's taught by me and by people you've heard on this program, all of whom have PhDs and are well-established in the academic world, but who, unlike much of the academic world, actually tell the truth. It's my dashboard university. You can learn the stuff they kept from you while you're on the go, and you can smash people in debates from now until the end of time. And can you really put a price tag on that? Our Black Friday deal is on the Lifetime or Master Membership, which also includes, as a bonus, all 400 videos, which are also available as audio files to listen to on the go, that I created for the Ron Paul curriculum. And you will get a lot out of those. All of Western civilization, from the Hebrews up to the present, with me as your guide. You're going to learn a lot. And you will feel like you are the master of the universe, whereas right now you feel like there are gaps in your knowledge and you're embarrassed that if anybody ever brought up this topic or that, you wouldn't know what to say. Never, ever feel that way again. You will dominate the room, ladies and gentlemen. So starting on Black Friday, that is November 29th, 2019. Go grab it at libertyclassroom.com. Go grab it for somebody who's dear to you or for yourself or for that student in your life too who's off at college learning heaven knows what. Get it for that student. The possibilities are endless. So libertyclassroom.com. Keep that in mind on Black Friday. I'll see you tomorrow.
1: Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.
0: Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.